Welcome to this installment of Context Clues, where we share excerpts from past episodes to give you a more complete background on the new topic at hand. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hello, my queens. I'm excited to announce our upcoming series on early drag queens, those who are often called female impersonators. We will be giving you the history of the English theater cross-dressing panics of the 1500s, the drag balls thrown by previously enslaved black men who fought the police, the female impersonators of the vaudeville stage who were hell-bent on proving their masculinity, the swishy performers who made drag queens the hottest trend of the 1930s, the shockingly sexy soldier drag shows of World War II, and the womanless weddings once thrown all over the South. We'll also look at a moment in time in the 1970s when the movements for women's rights, gay rights, and transgender rights changed everything the nation believed about the archetype of the female impersonator, of the drag queen, transforming this institution into the fantastically queer staple we know today the one apparently threatening the very fabric of American society. You see, before our modern era, these performances required serious safeguards in order to prevent a moral panic from forming. You could do drag, but you couldn't do drag because you wanted to do drag, because you liked wearing women's clothes. You had to do drag because it made you money and gave you fame. You had to jump through a lot of flaming hoops to prove that you weren't a fairy, a common term at the time for queer people. This didn't mean that there weren't those who practiced drag because they wanted to, because they loved it, because it made them feel good, because it made them feel true. But those queens were living out on the farthest margins of society, moving quietly through the night so as not to arouse suspicion, lest they be locked up in jail or worse. A quick aside, you'll hear me use the terms transvestite and transsexual in these excerpts, which are considered out of date and offensive to many transgender people. In their time, these terms essentially meant a man who wore women's clothing, who may or may not have been what we now call transgender. Each person was different, and we've used the historical terms in order to stay within the context of a time when the identities we honor today were unknown or just beginning to form. In America, we take for granted that the signifiers of gender have always been the way they are now. But in fact, up until World War II, when the landscape of American culture changed drastically, clothing for boys and girls was not at all what we know today. 
What's important to take away from this next section from our episode called Gender Reveal Parties is the ongoing anxiety that exists around categorizing gender and how all of it changes based on the political and cultural landscape of the time. But no matter what the time, whether we go back 3,500 years or look at the modern day, humans have always done what we can to try to divine the sex of our children before they even arrive. Because despite what we now know about the fluidity of gender, the way the world sees you as either a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, will will determine more about your life than most anything else. So please enjoy this excerpt from our episode, Gender Reveal Parties. As we all know very well, color, probably more than anything else, signals to others the decided gender of an infant. But color defining the difference in a baby's sex and gender is a very new phenomenon. In fact, so is differentiating at all between what little girls and little boys wear. A great example I encourage you to look up is Franklin Roosevelt's hilarious 1884 baby picture. In it, he has long blonde locks, wears a long white dress with white little frilly socks, shiny dainty black strapped shoes, and he holds a frilly white hat complete with a marabou feather. At two and a half, little Franklin's biological sex is not really discernible from what he's wearing in the picture, and that was totally normal. For centuries before the mid-1900s, gender-neutral clothing was the standard for infants in Anglo-Saxon culture up until the age of six or seven, a practicality more than anything else. White cloth diapers and white dresses were easy to bleach and easier to change. But slowly, as the Industrial Revolution produced industries of individuality selling us personal expression, they discovered that there was lots of money in baby expression in these gendered baby outfits. But those outfits might be a little different than you'd assume. This is well illustrated in a June 1918 article from Earnshaw's Infants Department that read, The generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. Color was also used more as a complement to eye and hair color. Pink for brunettes, blue for blondes, blue for blue eyes, pink for brown eyes. The culture waffled between these colors, pink and blue, and what they meant. And obviously it could have easily gone the other way. Still, in 1927, a chart was printed in Time magazine, dictated by several popular U.S. clothing companies, about the appropriate colors for babies based on their gender, with pink most often suggested for boys. Due to the post-World War II affluence of the late 1940s, 50s, and early 60s, 
the suburbs expanded all over the nation, and the Cold War capitalistic nuclear family structure became tantamount to being a patriotic American and fighting off the liberal, gay, commie agenda. The specter of homosexuality and gender confusion was also suddenly thrust into public consciousness with the 1950 Red Scare that purged 425 suspected gay men and lesbians from government and teaching jobs under the accusation that they could easily be manipulated by communist cells due to the collateral of this dark secret. Senator McCarthy said he had found 205 communists in the State Department. Among the many charges was one that the State Department had many homosexuals in its employ. Are you a member of the communist conspiracy as of this moment? As psychotherapists became obsessed with diagnosing, preventing, and curing problems with sexuality in what was then called cross-dressing or transvestism, gender signifiers became extremely important in spotting these psychological problems early and allowing parents and doctors to intervene. And so, politicians began using the same symptoms to diagnose possible gay traitors, sending investigators to scour government and educational employees for signs such as being unmarried, having a too feminine or masculine voice or mannerisms, or for wearing suspiciously queer articles of clothing. Eventually, this second Red Scare would be coined the Lavender Scare by historian David K. Johnson, in reference to the derogatory nickname given to gay men at the time by tabloids and politicians, the Lavender Lads. While all of this was going on in the background through the 50s and the first half of the 1960s, the culture began to pressure families so that little girls began dressing like their moms and boys like their father, a little baby-faced army of gender defenders. But beginning in the mid-1960s, the feminist women's libbers promoted the idea that feminine clothing was indicative of patriarchal control and that dressing in gender-neutral clothing was an expression of power previously denied. The feminist trend caught on beyond politics, and gender-neutral baby clothes became commonplace again in American culture, with the all-powerful Sears catalog not offering any pink baby clothes for two whole years. Not long after, the mystical sonogram began providing huge revelations for expectant parents. Before this medical device became commonplace, no one saw their future infant, not a glimpse, except maybe that alien result of their limbs bulging against the belly from inside. It wouldn't be until the moment that baby slid into the harsh light of the world that anyone would have known their sex. And so, no one could really assume or divine what sort of life they would have ahead of them. But it was the 80s now, and the Reagan administration wanted to make America great by returning to the Christian nuclear family culture of the 1950s. 
Then, along with the televangelist-led moral majority, they both began pushing back hard against the feminist, queer, and black liberation gains of the previous decade. And of course, against the evil, satanic homosexuals and transvestites that were allegedly hypnotizing and molesting children into their lifestyle. And so, baby clothes got even more gendered, more gendered than ever before, frantically gendered, as if they were talismans to ward off some kind of invisible evil. Onesies were patterned with teddy bears playing football, or lined with pink fringe and dotted with strawberries. Toys separated by gender, dark blue Tonka trucks and loud gray guns and bright pink miniature kitchens and all those searing Barbie dolls. Blue or pink disposable diapers that will live on for centuries after we have all turned to dust. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls, even when they wet their diapers. Corporate manipulation and the commodity of identity were winning again with this commodification of baby gender. And companies were making millions, billions, as they still do today. Mega party chain Party City is now selling more than a million gender reveal items each year. Now, 3D ultrasounds are all the rage, something that doctors tend to avoid unless there's a specific issue with the fetus. But you know who is not bound by such medical advice? Random ass people who've made ultrasound studios, companies with names like Babyface, Peek in the Pod, and Baby on Board, who attempt to capture a smile from the fetus. Is the face turned away from the camera? No problem. Just give that mom some candy and have her walk around the room until the fetus moves into a flattering, camera-ready position, a shot that will often become their very first photo on social media, coming before they are even born. Up to 15 people can come and watch this moment in tears and celebration, and of course, each can leave with all kinds of fantastic personalized merch, including teddy bears that play the fetal heartbeat and lifelike dolls of the fetus. The ultrasound image often appears on people's baby shower invitation, or on people's cakes, or on army-like dog tags for the men. Just a bunch of modern American talismans connected to a ritual. Human beings have always been obsessed with the mysterious, mystical, hidden fetus and all the possible futures. A 3,500-year-old medical text from Egypt details one such method of figuring out the sex of the fetus. Just have the expectant mother urinate into a big bag of barley and then also a big bag of wheat. The barley represents the possibility of a male infant and the wheat a female. Whichever sprouts first determines what the sex will be. This type of divination would carry into the European Middle Ages when community psychics called, get ready, 
piss profits would divine biological sex by an examination of the color or even taste of the urine, mixing it with wine to see how it interacted, by burning a ribbon soaked in urine to see if the woman gagged at the smell. Piss profits would most often read the bubbles after the mother peed in their special ritual bowl. It all sounds like quackery, and of course it is, but interestingly, back on that wheat and barley tip, a study from the National Institutes of Health in 1963 showed that urine from pregnant women did indeed cause sprouts in 70% of the cases, while urine from non-pregnant females and males did not show any sprouts, possibly due to the higher levels of estrogen present, but no one really knows. The sex of the fetus, however, was not able to be determined. Old wives' tales still make their rounds in American culture, and I bet you've heard some of them or had your grandmother swear it's true. Crave sweets or garlic? It's a girl. Got a shine about ya? Boy. Dilated pupils? Boy. Carrying your pregnancy high? Girl. Carrying it low? Boy. Our modern form of divination that most closely relates to the work of a piss prophet would have to be the Drano test urban legend. First thing in the morning, just mix up some of mother's urine with one of the scariest cleaning products of all time. And if it turns green, it's a girl. Blue, it's a boy. Don't do this. More after this. Welcome to the Magical Overthinkers podcast, a show for thought spiralers, exploring the subjects we can't stop overthinking about, from celebrity worship to social media comparison. I'm your host, Amanda Montel. I am a textbook overthinker. I'm also an author and the host of the podcast, Sounds Like a Cult. Every other Wednesday on the Magical Overthinkers podcast, I'll interview a charismatic expert guest about some confounding subject from the zeitgeist. Think narcissism, imposter syndrome, girl math. If you're like me and feel like the volume in your brain is just way too high sometimes, my hope is for this show to make some sense of the senseless. Listen to Magical Overthinkers now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. As we'll learn about in our upcoming series, drag queens, or female impersonators, appeared most often on the vaudeville stage, where the lower class gathered to watch what was considered by the elite to be distasteful at best, culturally dangerous at worst. These shows featured all kinds of performances, often a little risque, with comedians, ventriloquists, singers, circus performers, and quite a few drag queens as well. The audiences were mostly made up of men, but they also included women and children as well. Female impersonators were well-loved and highly paid in the late 1800s and early 1900s, as long as they followed certain rules that prevented them from appearing too effeminate, lest they become a threat to the straight masculinity of the crowd. 
Another place that gender was fucked with was in the freak shows that toured America in the 18 and 1900s, which both reinforced the ugliest parts of culture, but also provided a venue for the earliest gender nonconforming people to make money and control the gaze of the people who stared at them regardless. A hundred years later, the trash talk shows of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, your Phil Donahue, your Jerry Springer, your Geraldo, your Jenny Jones, created their own kind of freak shows, which very much included the gender nonconforming individuals who had not yet gained much public support and who were actually unknown to the public at large. Despite the obvious exploitation happening on these programs, they were the only places providing a venue to educate the public about trans issues, and their presence on this national stage contributed to the narrative that these were low-class programs, not made for the intelligent elite. So here it is, an excerpt from our episode called Trash Talk Shows. In 1989, a group of white men and one white woman staged an hour-and-a-half roundtable discussion about tabloid talk shows, featuring Phil Donahue, Morton Downey Jr., who was another host known for getting into screaming fights with his guests, Larry King, Jack Nelson of the New York Times, and other serious journalists, and several network and newspaper executives. I think we're, we're not talking so much about what's journalism and what's not journalism as what's good taste and what's bad taste, what's good manners, what's bad manners, and I think television now is overrun with bad taste and bad manners. You wrote in one of your columns it was dis- television was diseducating Americans. Yeah, it may be making us dumber. I mean, all the, all the uh, scholastic, t- if that's possible. No, I didn't mean wow. that. <laughs> that was renowned media critic Tom Shales of the Washington Post, who also had this kind of snooty, snotty thing to say in an editorial from the year before. Geraldo, the barrel-bottom talk hour starring dauntless panderer Geraldo Rivera, has dealt in recent weeks with transsexuals and their families, swinging sexual suicide, mud-wrestling women, Charles Manson, serial killers, kids who kill, battered women who kill, and, of course, male strippers. So, transgender people who have families were the first on the list of these American perversions, coming before serial killers, before Charles Manson. Shales, who would win the Pulitzer Prize for his cultural criticism that very year, followed up with this lovely condescending statement. Donahue remains the most frequently substantive of the shows, but this week, Phil flounced around in a skirt for a peek at cross-dressing. Around the same time, Democratic Senator Joseph Lieberman and conservative activist, Secretary of Education under Reagan and enormous war on drugs fanboy William Bennett began working on what they called the revolt of the revolted, as they so charmingly put it. Interestingly, both men had found recent success in their pact together, pushing Time Warner to drop all gangsta rap artists from their label. 
These hosts like Donahue, Geraldo, and Jerry Springer, who each have their own pretty impressive history in progressive politics, often pointed out this elitism, this pearl-clutching of intellectuals, the judgments they placed that seemed based in class, that seemed based in the same prejudices that permeated America. They were just doing it with good manners and with good taste. When you look at it this way, the audiences of these talk shows skew toward working-class black and white audiences, with Jerry Springer holding the number one spot for years. Around the same time as this roundtable discussion, critic Martin Kitman, writing for Newsweek and CNN, said, quote, The scariest thing about the show to me is the studio audience chanting, Jerry, Jerry, mostly yums, young urban males and misses as unrestrained as ever. This human zoo is a lot funnier than most new network sitcoms. It's telling to me that he would use language this specific in reference to freak shows, with human zoos usually displaying black people and other people of color as animals, as monsters, as only half-human, and as profoundly unintelligent, as we cover in detail in our episode called Monsters. The freak shows that existed from the mid-1800s up through the mid-1900s are often compared to trash talk shows. And like talk shows, they were a deeply complicated and nuanced place. They could promote profoundly racist and white supremacist views through their human zoos. And of course, they also invited the masses to gawk at abnormal individuals at a hefty profit for the showman. But at the same time, it was also a venue for the previously unseen, like those with physical disabilities as well as gender nonconformists. The bearded lady is the most famous example, and hermaphrodites, in this case simply those who the audience couldn't classify as explicitly a man or a woman, were some of the most popular acts, and they were met with wonder. One such freak, going by Albert Alberta, either had a medical condition or was just an early genderqueer who knew how to woo an audience, which is a specialty of ours. Albert Alberta, who used male pronouns, would work out one side of his body only, with the other half shaved either with a real breast growing from that medical condition or, in other reports, a fake one filled with birdseed. Either way, the crowd freaking loved it. When we look back at freak shows, the most common refrain is, How sad. Look at these poor people being exploited by a showman so he can get rich off their pitiable abnormalities. But freaks were also known to pickpocket the audience, give incorrect change, and gouge them to hell for cheap souvenirs. 
Often, they had a good deal of control over their acts and made pretty decent money, and a handful even became rich, which was a really big deal when there weren't a lot of career opportunities for folks like this. Despite the obvious truth that vulnerable people were being exploited for profit, many of them had a lot more agency than we like to remember. And maybe they don't need so much of our pity, but maybe they need our respect. So, similar to their reaction to shock talk shows, the highbrow community of the 1920s hated freak shows, even calling them lowbrow trash specifically, something for uncouth poor people to do. But the term highbrow actually comes from phrenology, which is something we cover in detail in our episode on quackery. At the time, doctors actually believed that the shape of the skull determined everything about a person's personality, health, and the value of their genetic stock. The higher the brow, which they conveniently claimed was a natural feature of wealthy white people, the smarter and more worthy the person was considered. Lowbrow, then, of course, meant the opposite, and usually referred specifically to people of color, poor white people, people with disabilities, and gender nonconforming individuals. Phrenology helped fuel the popular eugenics movement of the time, with upper class Americans quite charmed by the idea of creating a perfect race of smart, affluent white Americans. No trash allowed. The freaks of America wouldn't be closeted anymore, nor would they be put on vulgar display. Instead, they'd be used for medical experiments or tossed into asylums for their own good, for the good of medicine and science, or even bred out of the culture entirely. Now, whether we like it or not, Minority voices are often heard first through exploitation, through lowbrow entertainment, through the lucrative nature of sensationalism that those considered deviant have always been able to provide. The more outrageous a person is, the bigger the spectacle, the more people pay attention. And during the 80s and 90s, gay and gender nonconforming activists knew exactly how to work this angle, no matter how painful it was. Activist and writer Michelangelo Signorelli recalls, quote, Our philosophy was that we don't have the luxury of saying no to these people. You're given a very tiny window. You try to push that little bubble of information through the window before you get interrupted and do it in a way that seems entirely relaxed and calm. In some cases, activists actually haggled with producers in order to control at least some of their appearance. As told in our amazing primary source text, Freaks Talk Back by Joshua Gamson, Geraldo was doing a transgender wedding episode, and a trans woman and activist named Linda Phillips, who was married to her cisgender wife, Cynthia Phillips, used the term male lesbian to try to explain their unconventional relationship to the clueless producers of the late 1980s. 
Linda and Cynthia knew that this phrase, male lesbian, would be all that the aggressively puzzled audience would be able to focus on, but it was just too juicy for the producers to let go of, so they offered a trade. The salacious buzz phrase in exchange for the chance for the couple to publicize a book written by their friend about the emerging transgender community and their day-to-day life. Linda and Cynthia reluctantly agreed, and a large banner stretched across the TV set that said, MALE LESBIAN, in all caps, several exclamation points. And at the end, they got their short minute to share their resources. After taking all the shame-slinging and a pretty tough stride, they saw results. After each rerun of the episodes that each of these different activists appeared on, they would receive dozens of phone calls from all over the country asking for more information, hoping also to be seen. In Jerry Springer's autobiography, Ringmaster, he includes at the end some of his favorite final thoughts, those wrap-up moral diatribes you may remember. This one is about a trans woman named Brittany who had gotten her lover pregnant, quote. Like most people, I had difficulty understanding this issue. I mean, I guess I always knew what gender I was. If I was ever confused, a quick look in the mirror after stepping out of the shower would remind me that, in fact, I was a man. I looked like a man, felt like a man, and was attracted to women. It's never been an issue. But there are those, of no less moral value than the rest of us, who from birth on just aren't that clear. Their genetic makeup has left them confused when it comes to gender, and their choices are simply to suppress it, deal with it, or, in the extreme, medically change it. He goes on to talk about, regrettably, the confusion her new baby will feel over living in a home where, quote, dad's mom, or is he? And he says Brittany shouldn't be selfish and should stop dressing as a woman, lest it cause the child undue judgment and pain. But at the same time, what Jerry said is a pretty nuanced take for gender nonconformity for mainstream 1997. (sighs) Simultaneous truths. More after this. Have you heard about our Urban Legends hotline yet? You can actually go to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us a voice message about an urban legend that you grew up with. And we might actually do an investigation into your story and make an entire episode about it. And yeah, you'll get to hear your voice on the podcast. So if you have an urban legend that you just never really got out of your head from growing up, head to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us a message on our Urban Legends hotline. We are very excited to hear the teenage tales you have to tell. And now, back to the show. Up until the 1950s, the idea that a person might want to change their gender, might be able to actually alter their body to become a gender other than the one they were born into, 
was a shocking revelation, and it caused anxiety among a suburbanized middle class that had gone all in on traditional family values and gender roles after the horrors of the Second World War. Soon after the first famous gender-affirming surgery made news all over the nation in the early 1950s, gender non-conforming people started to be painted as perverted, dangerous, violent, and mentally unstable by their very nature. And one of the biggest true crime stories of the century would seriously reinforce that fear by inspiring horror movies like Psycho, the Texas Chains massacre and silence of the lambs. The lurid and false descriptions of the crime and criminal further cemented the idea that cross-dressing led to something extremely sinister. Please be aware, and you'll hear a second warning for this in the next excerpt, but a short section will include some really gory, truly awful stuff. If you're familiar with the story of Ed Gein, then you probably know what I'm talking about. So, here you go. An excerpt from our episode called Horror Movies Part 1. Bates in Psycho, Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Each of these characters had its origins in the same true story, the unspeakable crimes of a single man. No real-life event has inspired more scary movies than the 1957 discovery of an almost unbelievable real house of horrors located in the unassuming Midwestern town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. It was a typical morning in November when a local hardware store owner named Bernice Warden disappeared in the middle of her shift. Her son just so happened to be the deputy sheriff of Plainfield. And when she didn't show back up by the end of the day, he entered the store to find the cash register ransacked and blood on the floor. Following a handful of clues, investigators would arrest local, quiet, eccentric Ed Gein after they searched his infamous farmhouse. Just a warning here, the descriptions that I'm about to give you are some of, if not the most, gruesome stuff in American hysteria history, but it's also vital to understanding why it affected the genre so much, so skip ahead if you need to. Giving you a little time, giving you a little time, giving you a little time. Okay, here we go. The first horrific discovery on Ed Gein's property was in the decaying shed where Bernice Warden's body was found, decapitated and hung up by her ankles, cut open like a deer. Entering the main house, authorities found bowls made from human skulls, tanned human skin stretched across waste baskets and chairs, and a lampshade made with a human face, a belt made of nipples, nine vulvas in a shoebox, a pair of lips hanging on the drawstring of a window shade. Most impactfully, Gein had made a corset 
from a woman's torso skin, leggings from a woman's leg skin, and a collection of women's faces that could be worn as masks. Okay, it's over. You can come back. I'm sorry, everyone who listened. The subsequent investigation would reveal that Gein had murdered Bernice Warden and another woman named Mary Hogan, a local tavern owner who'd been missing for three years. It was discovered, however, that all the other human remains came from visits to the town cemetery, where he would exhume newly buried corpses of middle-aged women placed near his deceased mother's grave. To understand Ed Gein like a bearded psychoanalyst might, you must, of course, understand his relationship to his mother. Ed Gein grew up with an abusive father and an extremely overbearing, hauntingly Christian mother who ran a local grocery store. When the family moved onto a remote farm 10 miles out of town, Augusta Gein made certain to derail any friendships Ed was able to make despite his odd appearance and bizarre mannerisms, which allegedly included laughing out loud at nothing. Gein and his brother were essentially confined to the farmhouse while Augusta read the scariest Old Testament passages at them again and again, railing against the evils of sex, even within marriage, teaching them that all women were temptresses, whores, and she imagined them stalking the property line, ready to defile her pure, obedient sons. After the death of his father and his eventually disobedient brother, who a lot of people think he actually killed, it was just Ed, now in his 30s, and his ailing mother left alone on this secluded farm. And in fact, that's exactly the way they wanted it. When Augusta finally died in December of 1945, as you might imagine, the 39-year-old Ed Gein's entire reality shattered. Having no idea what to do without the center of his world to revolve around, he boarded up Augusta's bedroom and her sitting rooms, creating a perfectly preserved personal museum, an eerie contrast to the rest of the house that was decrepit, dirty, and covered in human remains. When he buried Augusta in the local cemetery, her tombstone simply read, mother. Well, what makes these men want to wear girls' clothes? Many things, but as I've said before, it usually starts in early childhood from one cause or another. Technically, each case has the same beginning, just a different set of circumstances. Are any of them actually cured? Oh yes, many, many of them. In a time of rising anxieties, not just about atomic war, but about sexuality and gender, marked by a new kind of psychotherapy supremacy, this story of Ed Gein hit a major cultural nerve in a way that's influenced horror up to the present day. At the end of the 1940s, a psychologist named Alfred Kinsey's book on the spectrum of sexuality helped spark a kind of homosexual and gender-based panic. Keep in mind that at this time, gayness and gender nonconformity were very linked in a way they aren't now. 
At the end of the 1940s, a psychologist named Alfred Kinsey's book on the spectrum of sexuality and how everybody could be a little gay helped spark a kind of homosexual and gender-based panic as many psychotherapists began focusing on this so-called deviation and how to cure it. And thanks to Freud, we knew the source, the parents. Abusive fathers, certainly, but overbearing mothers, absolutely. So when Ed Gein's crimes shocked the nation, it wasn't just the depravity, but also the specter of his mother's traumatic, smothering, and faulty love that was to blame for both his <gasps> transvestitism and his brutality. Two things that would unfortunately become linked together into the present day. All through the 1950s, Americans were getting acquainted with this thing that was called transvestitism then, and also cross-dressing. In many cases, people who we might call transgender today, but that language didn't exist back then. America had also been hearing about riots conducted by homosexuals and cross-dressers, while kids were watching educational films in school about predatory gays. During the Red Scare, Senator Joseph McCarthy would also identify and expel hundreds of homosexuals from government and teaching jobs, accusing them of being manipulated by communists. Gay bars and other places where gender non-conforming people hung out were routinely raided, using vague laws that punished those wearing the clothing of the opposite sex. Police would use this as an excuse to assault or allow street assaults on gay men, cross-dressing men, drag queens, and transgender women. But the movement was not giving up. And in 1952, papers everywhere were reporting about the first gender reassignment surgery undergone by trans woman Christine Jorgensen. A year later, an entire symposium would be held addressing what was also called transsexuality. And this completely wild educational film on transvestitism called Glenn or Glenda was showing widely, and the first transvestite was shown on a TV show called Confession, which reenacted crimes and featured on this particular episode a transvestite prostitute. Here's looking at you, SVU. Ed Gein was said to have been inspired by all this trans visibility. As usual, it was in large part because of hack true crime writers who played up the salacious angle of his transvestitism. He was never actually considered a cross-dresser or a transvestite or a transsexual by psychologists who were assigned to the case. In fact, that was routinely refuted. However, Life magazine ran an eight-page spread complete with images and the headline, House of Horror Stuns the Nation, and said that Gein, quote, wished he were a woman. An unidentified investigator would provide inside information on Gein to the Milwaukee Journal, talking all about his Oedipus complex due to his unnatural attachment to his mother. This article said that he, quote, considered inquiring about an operation to change into a woman and even thought of trying the operation upon himself, but did nothing about such plans. But the local crime lab director, Charles Wilson, said when asked about Gein's supposed desire to be a woman, it's news to me. 
There was no evidence that Gein wished to be a woman, but rather that he was attempting in some way to bring his mother back to life or sorting out his repressed sexuality and hatred of women instilled by his mother, or I mean, who the fuck knows? Regardless, what's still remembered most about Ed Gein is that suit made of women's skin. And the genre of horror would never let it go. This is Alfred Hitchcock. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little... Um tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. The point of all this, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. You see, I like you. I want you to be happy. What more can I say? The character of Norman Bates would be a much gentler version of Ed Gein in the 1960 landmark film Psycho. In the climax of the film, spoiler, but also, come on, Norman Bates appears wielding a knife dressed as his mother alter ego, her corpse preserved and kept in her room in a rocking chair. This film was directly inspired by the Ed Gein case, coming just three years after that gruesome farmhouse discovery and based loosely on a book written about the case. At the end of Psycho, a smug psychotherapist caps off the film, explaining in a long-winded and ridiculous monologue with a weird-ass smile the whole time, the details of Norman's psychological profile, which, to Hitchcock's credit, explicitly refuted that Norman was transsexual. But what do you think typical Americans, not yet well-versed in the nuance of queer theory, took away from this film. All right, my queens, that will do it for this installment of Context Clues. Please join us next week for part one of our two-part series on the early drag queens of America who set the glittering stage for the queens we know today. This was American Hysteria. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll get ad-free early episodes, as well as access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that I do with producer Miranda, all about the stories that were cut from the episodes. We have a lot of fun, and I really encourage you to join us. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can follow us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. And if you become a patron, you'll get access to our close friends Instagram, where I'll provide you with updates on what's going on behind the scenes. And you can learn along with me. If you have a second, we would really appreciate it if you leave us a review on whatever app you use. It really helps us out and it only takes a little second to do it. This episode was produced by Riley Swadelius Smith, and I'm your host, Chelsea Weber Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a gay, I mean great, week.